0: You have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 13. This summer we've been working our way through the book of Judges, which is the seventh book of the Bible. And this week we're up to Judges chapter 13 as we come to the story of Samson. Samson is the 12th and final judge. And uh, there are four chapters devoted to Samson, the most of any other judge. About 20% of this book, one-fifth, is devoted to Samson. And I don't know what you already know about Samson, but from growing up, going to Sunday school, and being involved in the church as a kid, I remembered that Samson had superhuman strength as long as he didn't cut his hair. And as I studied this week here at the beginning, I learned in, in Judges 13 that Samson was the only one of the 12 judges who was declared to be a judge before he was even born. His birth is somewhat of a miraculous birth, as we will see. And so as I was studying, it seemed to me that Samson was going to be one of the greatest judges ever. This last and twelfth one was going to be the best judge of all of them. And boy, was I disappointed. I did not hear the whole story in children's Sunday school growing up. Well, I'm going to tell you the whole story here today, the whole thing, all of it. I'm going to tell you the whole story of Samson. And as I studied these four chapters, I just kept thinking to myself, why would God devote four chapters to this guy? He's awful. He's terrible. If they made a movie about Samson, it would have to be rated R if they stayed true to the text. And that's because there's as much sex and scheming and violence and vengeance and cruelty to animals and just crazy stuff as any summer blockbuster that you saw this summer. I promise there's at least as much in here. And so I've been asking the question, why would God have this story in here? What does he have for us in it? So let me just pray for us. And then I'm going to tell you the story. This is a little different. There are two points to the sermon today, but they come at the end after the story. So we're just going to work our way through the story with limited commentary, as limited as I can be. I get excited. It's such a great text. And then the two points will come at the end. So let me pray for us, and we'll dig into this story. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We know and accept your word that... Uh, The scripture, that all scripture is God breathed and it came out of your mouth. And we know that all scripture is useful for teaching and rebuking and training and righteousness so that your people would be thoroughly equipped for every good task. Father, it's just hard to see how some passages of scripture are useful and how they do teach us and how they do rebuke and train and equip us. So Holy Spirit, would you be willing to come now And would you use your word that you inspired and specifically the preaching of your word to do the work that only you can do in our hearts. I pray that you would do that even now. I pray that you would do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's get to the story of Samson. It begins in Judges chapter 13 beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. We have seen, this is the seventh time now, we have seen this cycle in the book of Judges. You know the cycle if you've been with us, right? Everything's going well, the people are living in the land, they've been led into the land, the promised land that God gave them. The people rebel against God. You hear in the text, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The people rebel, then what happens? Ruin comes upon them, usually being overthrown by another country. And so the Philistines are ruling over them now. So we see the rebellion, we see the ruin. Typically in the cycle, what we see is then the people of God cry out to God. They repent. They cry out to him. God is faithful and raises up a rescuer. And they live under the rule of this rescuer until that rescuer dies, and then the cycle repeats, right? They do evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the whole cycle starts over again. So we said what they need is a judge that doesn't die, (laughs) because they do all right as long as they've got someone who's ruling over them. But when, of course, that person goes away, the cycle repeats itself. Well, you see the cycle here, that they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God gives them over to the Philistines, so we have that ruin that comes but then the cycle changes things have gotten so bad amongst the people of God that at this point they don't even cry out to God for God to save them they don't repent they just accept the rule of the Philistines over they're being assimilated into that culture they're not distinct anymore They're, they're not salt and light in the culture anymore And there are several times in the text, we'll see as we go through, they just say, look, they just accept the rule of the Philistines over them. They don't even cry out to God to rescue them. That's how bad it's gotten in the land. But God is so gracious and merciful, as as Mark read in Ephesians 2, that he's rich in mercy, and so God raises up a rescuer anyway, even though his people don't cry out to him. And in Judges chapter 13, you can read how Manoah and his wife could not have children. She was barren, and the angel of the Lord appears to them and says to Mrs. Manoah that she will conceive and that she will have a son and that while she's pregnant, she's to drink no wine. She's supposed to touch nothing that's unclean, eat nothing that is unclean. And once the son is born, he's to drink no wine or have any kind of permitted drink. He is to touch nothing unclean clean, eat nothing unclean, and a razor is never to touch his head because he will be a Nazarite set apart from God from the day that he is born until the day that he dies, and that this child will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And you can read in Judges 13 how Samson is born. He is named. He's the only judge declared to be a rescuer before birth. He comes because of God's grace and mercy with the people don't even cry out. He's declared to be a rescuer before he's even born. There's this miraculous conception through a woman who is barren. So we think this guy's going to be the best judge ever. Judges chapter 14 verse 1. This is where we first meet. I'm not even going to comment on him. I'm just going to read the text and let you draw your conclusion. Here's where we first meet Samson. Judges 14 verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all the people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Oh my goodness, Samson is awful. Samson, I mean, I don't even know how you would, I mean, I was thinking about, he's selfish, he's demanding, he's disrespectful, he's really just kind of a punk here. I mean, he is not good. He tells his parents, he tells them what he wants them to do. He's demanding, he says, get her for me. She's not even a part of his people. You need to understand that Israelite men were forbidden from marrying foreign wives. And we touched on this last week and said that it's not because God is against interracial marriage, but what God is against is a believer marrying an unbeliever. What he's against is somebody who's a part of the people of God marrying somebody who's not a part of the people of God. And the reason he's against that is because these foreign wives came with their foreign gods and that often led people astray. And as a judge in particular, remember Samson was conceived of being raised up because he's supposed to lead the fight against the enemies of God's people and instead he wants to marry one of them. This is not a good situation. He doesn't accept wise counsel. He doesn't honor his father and mother. And he says, She is right in my eyes. I got to stop right there and talk for a minute because I think that gives us a lot of insight into what is sin. What is sin? You know, chapter 13 and verse 1 said that the Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then here in Judges 14 and verse 3, Samson says, she is right in my eyes. And we're being taught about the nature of sin. You see, sin is not what we decide is wrong. We don't define what sin is. Sin is what God says is wrong. And it's really important that we understand this point. And here's the reason why. Because you live in a culture that will tell you only you can decide what is right or what is wrong for you. That is what the culture will tell you. And so you need to understand, I mean, I guess every good lie has a half-truth to it, and there is a part of that that is true, right? If God has not directly spoken to something in his word, then you do have freedom of conscience to choose what is right and what is wrong for you. That much is true. But where God has spoken in his word, God decides what is right and what is wrong. He is the one who determines what sin is. Now, if you're like me, and I hear that in a sermon, I'm like, okay, yeah, I see that, but why? Why is that the case? Why is that? Maybe your kids are to that point that they ask that question all the time. Maybe you're asking that question, why? So let's just talk about why is it that God defines and decides what's right and wrong? Why is that the case? Two reasons. Number one, because God created all things. He made everything so he gets to set the rules because it's his. If I make up a game that's my game that I invent and you want to come and play in my game, I get to make what the rules are. Well, God made everything. This is his world and he gets to set what the rules are. But more importantly, think about it with me. Since God made all things, that means he designed all things and he knows how things are supposed to work. He knows how they're going to work well and he knows how they're not going to work well. Like let's just imagine I take my beloved 2004 Toyota Highlander and I say, you know, I'm tired of paying for this gas that's gotten expensive. So I'm just going to run the garden hose out there and put some water and fill the tank up with water. Because that's what seems right in my eyes, because that's cheaper, right? Well, of course, who knows better how the Toyota Highlander is designed? Toyota or me. The designer, the manufacturer knows how it's supposed to work. And yeah, I suppose you can put water in it if you want to, but it's not going to work very well. And that's why God gets to define and decide, because he made everything and he's the designer. And sure, you could do something else in your own eyes if you want to, but it's not going to work out very well. That's the first reason, because God made all things. That's why he decides what's right and wrong. Second, the second reason we depend on God to define for us what is right and what is wrong is this. Because sin is deceptive. Sin deceives, and so what that means is that our eyes are not very good at judging what is right and wrong. Think about it. We often do things that we think are very right, but they turn out to be very wrong. Our eyes are not good at judging what is right and what is wrong. And that's because sin is deceptive. I think of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, which talks about the deceptiveness of sin. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14, where where Paul is writing about the very first sin. And he said that the very first sin occurred when Eve was deceived. Think about that. She saw the fruit of the tree, it looked desirable for food, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, so she took some and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Sin is deceptive. Our eyes are not good at judging what is right and what is wrong. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. In the context, he's talking about false apostles. And he's saying, look, if Satan masquerades as an angel of light, these false things are going to present as good and holy and true and righteous. Because we're deceived. Revelation 12 refers to the evil one, Satan, as the deceiver of the whole world. Unless you think that just means people outside the church that I would ask you to recall to remember Galatians 6 and verse 7 where Paul is writing to people in the church and he says to them, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Now why does Paul write to people in the church not to be deceived? Because it's possible for us to be deceived. That's the other reason why we depend on God. Because sin is deceitful and our eyes are not good at determining what is right and what is wrong. Before I move on, let me just ask you. Where are you most tempted to ignore what God says because something else seems right in your eyes? We talked some last week and said if you grew up in this culture or in the West or in the United States that you probably have a skewed view of money and consumerism because of the culture we've grown up in. That's a place that our eyes are off. We said last week that if you grew up in this culture where we live, watching the movies, listening to the songs on the radio, standing in line at the grocery store reading the headlines, then you probably have a skewed view of sex and sexuality in this country. We have a skewed view of power and the nature of power. We have skewed views about success and what constitutes success. So listen, do not be deceived by what seems right in your eyes. If there is not a place in your life that you, it really seems like to you this would be better and God is telling you no. And the only reason you're not venturing in that area is because God has said No. Then you're probably just doing what's right in your own eyes and God is not really real and his word is not making a real difference in your life There should be some place that God is crossing your will And that's a good thing Because God created all things He know how it's designed to work you can do what's right in your own eyes, but it's probably not going to work out very well And our eyes are not so good at determining what is right and what is wrong well let's keep going in the story judges 14 beginning in verse 5 samson is on his way to see this woman that he wants to marry and as he's going down there this young lion comes up roaring and samson just kills the lion with his bare hands this is we see a couple of things is an important part of the story number one is the first time we see his superhuman power that he just rips apart a lion with his bare hands no weapon He just kills a lion with his bare hands. So we see his great power, but we also see Samson's rebellion. If you haven't seen it already, you see it clearly here. Because if he touches something that is dead, then that would make him unclean. Remember the angel of the Lord said he's not supposed to touch things that are unclean. So really he should go to the tabernacle for some kind of cleansing. But he doesn't, because he's on his way to see this girl. And so he goes down there, he sees her, he spends time with her, and then on another occasion, either on his way back home or another time that he's going to see her, the text doesn't make clear, he sees that carcass of the lion that he killed. And bees have made a hive in the carcass of this lion. And so he goes over and opens up the carcass and gets some of that hive and eats the honey out of it. Now what's he doing? He's eating things that are unclean because it's touched something dead. So he's touched what's unclean, he's eating things that are unclean, he's breaking all of his Nazarite vows that he made. Verse 10 of chapter 14 tells us that he marries this foreign girl, another violation of God's law, and at the wedding to celebrate, they had this feast, and at that time he drank fermented drink. So he is breaking all his Nazarite vows. Now as you might imagine, maybe it's because he drank the fermented drink. Maybe he's just this kind of guy. But he makes a bet with these 30 men who are at the wedding. And he says, I bet you can't answer this riddle that I've got. And he tells a riddle about the lion and the honey. And what's on the line is 30 pieces of linen and 30 changes of clothes. And he either has to give that to the 30 men if they guess it, or they've got to get 30 pieces of linen and 30 changes of clothes for him. Well, they can't figure out the answer to the riddle. And so they go to his new wife and say, Hey, will you tell us what the answer is to his riddle? And she tells them. She reveals the answer. Not the first time Samson will be betrayed by a woman. And so she tells them the answer. And then they come back and they say, okay, we can answer your riddle. And they give the answer. Samson's furious. He is so angry. And so, in order to pay off the debt, he goes and, I'm not making this up, kills 30 men, just picks 30 people and kills them to take their 30 pieces of linen and their 30 changes of clothes to pay off this bet that he made. He's violent. He's brazenly just killing innocent people in order to pay off a debt. And he's so angry at his wife for telling what happened that Samson goes back home to his father's house and he leaves his wife at her father's house. Not exactly God's plan for marriage, right? Which involves leaving and cleaving and coming together as a couple. So again, violating God's word here, the girl's father wants to avoid her being disgraced. Now, we had this party. I thought she was married. So he says, okay, she is married, and he gives the, uh, Samson's wife to his best man, and that's now her husband. Judges chapter 15. Samson has cooled off after a while. It's at the time of the harvest, and he decides he's going to go see his wife, right? And he's going down there and he says, let me get it right, he goes back at the time of the harvest and wants to go into his wife's chamber. Says he brought a young goat with him, the romantic, bring a young... I guess today we might bring a bottle of wine and like an Al Green album or something. But he wants to go into her chamber and he's bringing this young goat. And her father stops him and says, whoa, hold on. I thought you hated her. And so I gave her to your best man. He says, here, you can have her younger sister. She's much more beautiful. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this story is broken and messed up. Well, you can imagine how Samson takes it. He's angry. And so the text is he goes, and I don't even know how you would do this. But he goes and he captures 300 foxes. 300. And he ties their tails together. Here's the animal cruelty part, right? No animals were harmed in the making. I'm sure there were animals harmed. And he ties their tails together and he puts a burning torch and he turns them loose in these fields at the time of the harvest. And so these people have been working all year in order to have an olive crop, in order to have food and have grain, and Samson turns these foxes loose and it burns the field down. So they don't have anything to eat or to trade with for this year. And so the whole town is angry And so to get back at Samson, they go and they burn his wife and her father. Hear what I'm saying? I didn't say they burned their house down. I said they burned his wife and her father. They just burn them alive. Now they're dead. Well, Samson's angry about that. So he comes, and the text says that he viciously slaughters many of the ones that had burned his father-in-law and his wife. So the Philistines gather an army, and they're going to attack Israel. That's what's going on. Now, listen, this story's broken and messed up. But at this point, I'm like, okay, finally, right? The Philistines are coming with an army. Surely, Samson's going to go back. He's going to raise an army. Then God's people are finally going to fight the bad guys, throw off the yoke of Philistine rule, and we're going to be where we should be, right? Finally, something's going well in the story. And the Israelites... Know that the Philistines are coming and they do gather 3,000 men. And I'm like, that's great. Gideon only needed 300, right? So they're going to be fine. And they got Samson and 3,000 men. And so the Israelites all gather together. I'm like, oh, finally they're raising up like they're supposed to do. And guess what they do? The 3,000 men go and arrest Samson. And they say, what are you doing? You're going to get us in a war. The Philistines rule over us. We just accept that. And now you've got us in trouble, so we're going to bind you and give you over to them. And he was like, are you going to kill me, or are you just going to give me over to them? And they are like, no, we're just going to bind you and give them to them. He was like, okay, go ahead and bind me then. (laughs) And they tie ropes around him, and they take him out, and they give him to the Philistines, and then the 3,000 Israelites leave. Samson, of course, breaks the ropes, gets a jawbone of a donkey. I don't know, maybe it was lying around. I don't know why he has the jawbone of a donkey. And then he kills a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. And judges, this is crazy, I know. They never told me this part in Sunday school. So then at the end, he's, he's, he's pushed away by himself the Philistines. And Judges 15 ends with Samson thanking God for victory. And I'm like, finally God's man's turning to God. At the end of Judges 15, Samson is crying out to God for water because he's going to die in the wilderness without water. And God graciously provides water for him. And I'm like, yes, God's man has now humbled himself. He's thanked God for the victory. He's crying out to God to save his life so that he doesn't die of thirst. Simpson's finally humbling himself and turning to God. Judges 16, verse 1, the next thing that happens. I'm again. I'm just going to read the text because I can't even make this stuff up. Judges 16, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. I'm like, really? You were were just turning to God and and humbling yourself and crying out to him, and now you're going to go spend the night with a prostitute? This is where we are? Well, the Philistines find out where he is and they encircle the house where he is and they close the the gates to the city and say, we've got him now. We've got him. Close the gates to the city. As soon as the sun comes up, we're going to kill him. And he is not getting out of this one. Well, Samson wakes up about midnight. And decides he's going to leave. Fights his way to the city gates. I'm picturing like this Israeli Rambo that's like fighting his way to the city gates. The gates are closed so he can't get out. So Samson just lifts the gates off of their hinges. And carries the gates some distance. Now it took multiple men to open and shut the gate. He's just lifting it by himself. Carries it all some distance. So now their city can't be defended against people coming from the outside. But Samson's getting reckless. He's going to prostitutes now, not even going to his wife. We hadn't even gotten to Delilah yet. Let's get there. Judges chapter 16 beginning in verse 4. (laughs) Watch this. This is funny. Watch. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bond him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So you see her mission, right? And I'm thinking, man, she must be beautiful. She's going to be very subtle and seductive, right? Verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. (laughs) You know, just in case hypothetically somebody wanted to or something, I thought maybe you could tell us the secret of your strength. Well, this is easy to see through, right? So now Samson proceeds to tell her a series of lies. First, he tells her in verse seven, that if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have been dried, I shall become weak like any other man." So the Philistines get her these bowstrings, and he goes to Delilah's house and falls asleep. I'm sure just because he's had a really heavy meal is why he's sleeping over there and falling asleep. She ties him with the bowstrings. Then she yells, "The Philistines are upon a Samson, and he jumps up and snaps the bowstring obviously that doesn't do anything so she's like well you're not telling me the truth so then he goes through this okay if it's a rope that's never been used before and you know the routine falls asleep at her house again ties him with a rope that's never been used before Samson the Philistines are upon you breaks through it she's like really please tell me Was like, okay if you braid my hair so he falls asleep at her house she braids his hair Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He jumps up. It doesn't stop him at all, right? So there's a pattern here. Look, Samson, whatever you tell her will make you weak. She does that thing to you while you're asleep, okay? That's the pattern here. That's what's been going on. Verse 17. He tells her the real strength of his power. Verse 17, and he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak like any other man. Like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? That was so dumb. You know what she's going to do next. She's going to shave your head while you're asleep. What are you thinking? What are you doing? I got mad at Samson for about two days after this. And, and, and at God for having this in here. How am I supposed to preach on that? What is the message? Just don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Let's come to the Lord's table. But as I thought about this story more and more... What finally hit me is that I don't think it's stupidity that made Samson tell Delilah his secret. I don't think it was stupidity as much as it was arrogance. Think about it. He had broken all his other vows and still retained his great strength that had never slowed him down or stopped him before So what difference did it make if he broke one more vow? I mean, how is that really going to make that big? He could still escape. He could still do what he wanted. Do you ever hear that voice? Jesus died for you on the cross. His blood saves you. His blood covers your sins. So go ahead and sin. What difference does one more sin make? We hear that voice sometimes, don't we? And in this case, God said, no, this has gone far enough. Look at verse 20. She says, the Philistines are upon you like she always does. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. His strength is gone, but the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles when he ground at the mill in the prison. Listen, there is so much going on here. For my literary folks, if you are liter- you need to do a study of eyes here. Beginning in 13.1, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. She's right in my eyes. Now they're gouging out his eyes. There's a whole thing with eyes going on here. Samson's also being dehumanized. He's being used like oxen. That's what he was carrying out their role in grinding wheat. So he's been dehumanized. There's a lot going on here. But you see Samson's downfall, his confidence in himself, his presuming on the grace of God. That's what leads to his downfall. And for the first time in the entire book of Judges, God's judge is defeated. And I'm asking, why devote four chapters of this book to this guy? What are God's people supposed to learn about this? What are we supposed to take away? What do you preach? What are the points of the sermon? The story makes us angry. It's sad. It's tragic. And I think it's meant to anger us at sin. I think it's meant to show us how tragic it is when sin deceives us. And we so quickly see in someone else the tragedy, the stupidity of going back to sin over and over again and presuming upon the grace and the mercy of God. But as we think about this story and we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit this man personifies us. Samson's story is our story. What you see in Samson's life is what God or others see when they look at our life. Listen, maybe it's not the same sin that Samson struggled with, but it's the same pattern, isn't it? Wanting what we want Doing what is right in our own eyes. Taking the gifts and the grace of God for granted. Assuming we can just do one more thing wrong and it'll be okay with no consequences at all. Even though God says, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Brings us to the two points. I was wondering if this sermon had any points. It brings us to the two points of the sermon. The first point is this. The story of Samson points God's people to our own sinfulness. Samson does what is right in his own eyes. The people of Israel who were first reading this story are doing what is right in their own eyes. Both Samson and Israel, the people of God, have been set apart for a purpose. Both have been separated from the people around them, but they long to be like the people around them. Samson chased foreign women, Israel chased foreign gods, and God called it adultery. You are unfaithful to me when you turn to other gods, just as guilty as Samson. Both Samson and the people of God fail to keep their covenant vows. Both fail to follow their calling as God has defined it. Both become self-sufficient and live like God is not there. The people of God are not even crying out for his help any longer. At least Samson's doing that at times. Both suffer for their betrayal of God. How about you and me? You know, this story is not just historical. God is raising up a mirror. And we can so clearly see the folly of sin in another. But then as Nathan says to David, you're the man in this mirror. You're the man in the story. Repeatedly going back to your favorite sin, thinking... That it's going to make everything okay. Tragically going back there, presuming on the grace of God. Oh, the story of Samson points God's people to our own sinfulness. But let me tell you, there's a second point. The story of Samson also points God's people to our only way of salvation. Samson turns to God in humility and he cries out to God. And listen, God saves him samson is in heaven it's like really this guy is better yes read hebrews 11 down around verse 32 in the faith hall of fame samson's in there are you kidding me yes god saves him and then god uses him. let me show you the end of the story judges 16 beginning in verse 28 just to give you the background the philistines had gathered to sacrifice to their god they're having this big feast And they say, oh, our God has given us a victory over Samson. Bring him out so that he may entertain us. And they're basically mocking him at this feast. Verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, And he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And the prophecy comes true that he begins the deliverance of the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines oh the lesson for God's people listen the lessons this (laughs) turn to God in humility cry out to him God will save you God will even use you to accomplish his purposes The message to the original audience of Israel and the message to us is this. The message is, it's not too late. It's not too late. I don't know how broken and messed up your life is, but it can't be much worse than this guy. But like Samson, when we turn to God in humility and cry out to him, he saves us. And he uses us to accomplish his purpose. May the story of Samson point us to our own sinfulness, but also point us to the only way of salvation. Let's pray and ask God to do that with this story. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us so clearly. Help us to just give us eyes to see that we would understand how this story applies to us. And I pray that you would help us to see our own sinfulness, but also the only way of salvation, that we would humble ourselves and cry out to you that you might save us, that you might use us for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.